So this is the last of the seven great signs in the book of John. John is broken up in this way. Seven signs, starting with the wedding in Cana, which we looked at some weeks ago. And then uh, the sixth one we looked at last week, uh, the healing of the blind man. And this week, the last, which is the raising Lazarus from the dead. And as they get closer to the end, they more and more foreshadow Jesus' death and resurrection. And they more and more irk Jesus' enemies. And this one seems to be in the narrative that John gives us, the last straw for the Pharisees and Sadducees that gets them to enact that final plan of bringing Jesus to Pilate and Herod and ultimately to the cross. And yet again, as we've seen studying through the book of John, yet again, this motif of light versus darkness, day versus night, permeates this entire text. Now, John doesn't seem to give us a perfectly chronological account. That's not what he's out to do. But time, in that way, is very important to him and to his structure. So we have great attention on that first week of Jesus' ministry. And then we have great attention on that last week of Jesus' ministry. And even more than that, in the broader sense, the concept of time is always at the forefront and how God is in control of it. Remember at Cana, when Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. That's a very common phrase, variations on that. We're told by John in in, uh, chapter 8, his time had not yet come. And on the flip side, in chapter 12, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. We could go on and on and on about the hour having come or not having come. Time in that way, God being in control of time and having prescribed certain times for certain things is always looming in the background. And here in this passage, it's important as well. There are a number of days and the timing of things is important. And then there's also this teaching in verses 9 and 10 about light and darkness, day and night, that kind of tie all of this to what came before it. Now, it's a story of the sickness and death of a man named Lazarus. And although Lazarus only actually appears in two little chapters of one of the Gospels, He is clearly a very close friend of Jesus. They have a very close relationship. When he falls ill, his sisters, also friends of Jesus, Mary and Martha, send word and they say to him, the one you love is ill. The one you love, they don't even use his name. They know that Jesus will understand what they're talking about. In the Greek, the word they use for the one you love is phileis from philia, brotherly love, Friendly love, like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. So there's this very close relationship, and they know that Jesus has a great interest, and they point out, this is the one you love, and yet, what is his situation? He's sick. He's ill. He's, he's wasting away. It's urgent. This shows us, of course, that for those of us whom Jesus loves, who can claim Him as our Savior, who can claim him as even our friend, according to scriptures, are not exempt from trials and struggles and trouble. In fact, Jesus promises us, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He is our Father, which is even closer than a friend. 
We're told there's a friend that's closer than a brother and a, a loving father closer yet. Abba, Father, we're told we can call him, which is, which is a, a form that's very close and intimate. And yet, as a father, I know the struggle of knowing how much to protect your child from suffering. That I've heard many people share many horrible stories of childhood with a, a father who's unfeeling or a mother who's just completely detached and, and absent and cold and unkind and not comforting at all. And that is something to be avoided. But we also don't do our children any favors if we give them everything they want, if we don't let them deal with any difficulties or feel any consequences of poor judgment or, or mistakes. They won't grow. They won't mature. They won't they won't be refined if we don't let them struggle or suffer in any way. Well, God doesn't stress out over this, but as our Father, because our Abba Father loves us, He does not grant us our every wish and whim. He does not lead us around the valley of the shadow of death to the mountain of cotton candy and milkshake rivers. Rather, He leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. And with David, we can say, we know thou art with me. But in this case, this is not some whim or wish. This is grave. Lazarus is dying. And so Mary and Martha naturally reach out to their master, their friend. And notice they don't demand that Jesus come. They don't even ask for him to come. Their whole, their whole thing is informative. They say, behold, which just whenever you see that, it's all bible Just write see or look. I want you to know, your attention, please, the one you love is sick. The one you love is sick. Lord, behold. And so they assume that he is going to come. Why? Because he and Lazarus are friendly. They are close. And because Jesus has done miracles in their presence before. But Jesus' response to the messengers is, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This illness does not lead to death. And then, of course, when we continue reading, we find that Lazarus does die. Is Jesus wrong? No, it doesn't lead to death. It leads through death. Again, not around it, but through it. God is going to do a mighty work here to glorify the Son of Man. In fact, to very woodenly translate the Greek, he says this sickness is not toward death. I mean, it's not lined up with death. There's something beyond that we are aiming at. What's interesting to me, and I'm no mathematician, but when I do the math here and go, well, let's see, he waits two days. It's one day's journey. And Lazarus has been dead four days when he gets there. It seems to me Lazarus is already dead when Jesus says that. That Lazarus either died when, shortly after the men left to inform him, or at the very least he dies shortly after Jesus says this. And to us, that, that almost sounds sneaky. It almost sounds like misleading. Like Jesus might be kind of guilty of breaking that commandment of bearing false witness. But we have to understand the difference between Christ's perspective and ours and try and get our minds more in his frame of mind. You know, we've been introducing our son to the Back to the Future movies at our house because we're not communists. And uh, there's a scene where 
they're going to go back in time. And of course, they got to go 88 miles an hour. You know the story. And then as soon as they hit 88, boom, they go to whatever year they've programmed in. And they're pointed toward a big wall. And Marty says, eh, Doc, you know, we're going we're gonna to hit that wall. And Doc says, nonsense, Marty. You're not thinking fourth dimensionally. You're going to drive toward that wall, but then you're going to go back to before that wall even existed, and you'll be fine. You're not thinking fourth dimensionally. Well, the disciples here, and especially Mary and Martha, they are thinking fourth dimensionally. Fourth dimension is time, of course. But they're not thinking, maybe we'd say fifth dimensionally. Zoom out further yet. God is outside of time. And he looks at this situation, and Christ, with his infinite wisdom, looks at this situation and knows God's will here. And that they are not bound by the normal expectations. That, that there is something God is doing here that's, that's even bigger than fourth dimensionally. And then verse 5 just confirms for us, in case you thought maybe Jesus had a secret grudge against this guy, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And if you look in your concordance or you open up your Greek New Testament, you find that John uses a different word for love here. It's not philia, it's not the brotherly love. It's agapao, agape. The kind of love that God shows. The kind of love that lays down his life for us. He does love them. And in some translations it says, and yet, or however, he waited. He, he waited two days. He abided two days where he already was. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. Usually the word there means, and so. In the ESV it says that. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. That doesn't make any sense. You're not thinking fifth dimensionally. God is in control of all of this. And Christ is doing something beyond the understanding of his disciples. And what is heartening is that his disciples, the twelve, and his disciples, Mary and Martha, although they don't get it and they make that clear, still they submit themselves to his will. Because this is not pointed toward death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And we often will take Romans 8.28 and we'll tell each other God works all things together for the good of those who love Him and we'll, and we'll put that on t-shirts and we'll put it on our Facebook wall and yet behind it is often the assumption that I get to decide what's good, what's good for me. So you, you always work things together for my good. Well, here's what my good is. Like, like when I say I'm going to Subway and Aaron will write out you know, her sandwich and it's always like, oh, what was the thing last time? Uh, well-drained or something. This has got to be well-drained. And I read this whole order. I, I got the order right here. Hold on, let me read the thing. This is how we're approaching Jesus often. Yeah, you're going to work things out for my good. Here's my good. Uh, and if you can you know, get back quickly, I'll have a high tip for you. What does it actually look like for God to work all things together for the good of those who love him? It looks like this. This is a great example. He abides two days where he was, having been requested without actually requesting, but it's implied you need to get here now. This is a good verse to remember, to, to commit to memory. So Jesus abided two days in the place where he was. 
And that seems like a strange verse to memorize until you're in a position where you think, God, I need you right now. You're already late. Ah, Jesus loved them. So he abided two days where he was. Jesus obeys the Father's will and not his disciples' will. And that is best for God's glory and it's best for the faith of his followers. And when they could look back, even if, if, even if we go fourth dimensionally, if they could go back and, and have the benefit of hindsight, they would see. I once heard a preacher, and I would uh, give him credit, but I don't remember who it was, uh, talking about a day that he, he was flying in to his home airport. And as they were descending and flying in, he looked down at the freeway he would have to take to get home and saw that it was backed up, like way backed up. And he could, he could imagine all the honking and all the anger, and it was a big metropolitan area. And then he looked a little further, and he saw what was stopping the traffic, that it was just a few flashing lights, and it was one car, and it was already being pushed out of the way. And he thought, all right, I don't need to avoid that freeway. I can get on it and go home when I land. He had a perspective that nobody on the ground did. If they did, they wouldn't be angry and honking, which undoubtedly they were. God has that perspective. And when we demand, here's my order, I'll have this, this definition of goodness, and I'll have it well-drained. It's not good that you're the goat in that illustration. Sorry, Aaron. I love you. This, this becomes a, a, a struggle between God's will and my will, rather than what Christ will pray in the garden, not my will, but your will be done. Then we come to the day and the night and the darkness and the light. Jesus answers, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This is language that John will take and run with and dig deep into in his epistles. But here Jesus just makes kind of a casual reference to this concept once again. And he, you know, he, he'd mentioned that he's the light of the world right before he healed the blind man last week. 9 verse 4. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. But it is yet day. And it's, it's easy to miss the point here in a world where I like to go for, if I can't sleep, I like to go for a walk late at night. It's no problem. There's street lights. There's... I mean, the Frandor right near our house is glowing with the, the strength of the sun, and it's never dark. I can walk around. It's no problem. I see people driving to and from work for second and third shift. The world's still alive. But in the world in which Jesus and his disciples were living, as soon as it was dark, day's done. You don't go out and try and harvest at night. You get killed that way. You're, you, you'd step into a rut and break your ankle, and then who's going to harvest your crop? And to travel at night, even a short distance, it was to risk being injured or attacked. And so you went inside. And and that was it for the day. And Jesus takes this truth and he says, listen, I'm the light of the world. You walk in the light, you will not stumble. You walk apart from me and you will. Jesus even calls hell the outer darkness. Why is it outer darkness? Because the light of God's mercy is not there. Walk in the light while the light is with us. The light of our own wisdom and desires, it's not truly light. It's darkness. Walking in the light means walking by faith, not by sight. 
And then Jesus marries this to the notion of time. You've got the light and the dark and the time and everything that's important in the Gospel of John sort of twisting together here. Because, you see, there's 12 hours in the day, in the, 12 hours of daylight, the NIV says, kind of getting across Jesus' meaning. And those 12 hours are not yet up. Jesus is what we might say in the 11th hour of his ministry at this point. He is nearing the end. And yet, the sun is not yet set. It is not yet his hour to die. It is not the hour of darkness. And so he is going to continue to bring light. It doesn't matter what hour it is as long as the sun is out. And I think that this comes to a couple of objections that people have for why they can't really serve Christ. I've heard people say, you know, I... When I was young, I used to really want to do all these things for Jesus, but now it's too late. I've squandered all these years, the good part of my life, and now it's, it's over. It's, it's done, and, and here I am with nothing but regret. You know where we get that phrase, the 11th hour? From Jesus, from one of his parables. There's a parable of the vineyard and the laborers. A man went out, he had to hire people to work in his vineyard, and he went out First hour, that's just the first hour of sunlight. He, he went out and he found some people sitting around. He said, you guys want a job? I'll pay one denarius. That's a fair day's wage. They all said, yeah, okay, come on. They started working in the vineyard. At about third hour, he said, I need more guys. Went back into the square. Said, hey, you guys, you want a job? I'll pay you a denarius. Does the same thing at the sixth hour. I'll pay you a denarius. The ninth hour. Even the 11th hour, one hour of the workday left. And what is he going to pay them? A denarius. And those who work the longest, they say, oh, that's not fair. And of course, if we understand what we've received in the death and resurrection of Jesus, the grace of God, we know it's not fair no matter how long we've served him. But the point I'm making today is that if it's the 11th hour of your life even, it's not too late to serve him. Well, the light is there. Walk in the light. Walk in the light. Others would say, I, it's not too late. I'm just too busy. In fact, it's the opposite. Maybe later on when I'm not so busy, when I'm retired, and then I have nothing but free time, right? That's when I'm going to serve him. But right now, there's just not enough hours in the day. And Jesus says, there are. There, there are. There are 12 hours in the day. There are enough hours in the day. Enough time to do what God has called you to do. We use that excuse that we're too busy, that there's not enough time because our priorities are out of whack. There, there are people who have told me, I, I'm sorry, I just, I'd like to come to church, or I'd like to come to prayer meeting, or I'd like to do this or that, but I just have too many things in my life. And I know for a fact that if their spouse got sick, or if their uh, work began to suddenly require them to, to work an extra 10 hours, they'd make it happen. We do what we value. We make time for what we value. We set our priorities. And yet we act as if God gets not the first fruits, but the leftovers. And if he wants a lot, he'll give us lots of leftovers. His fault, I guess. We take that verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we make it mean, I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. I can do everything all at once. I, I can do whatever. Paul was talking, by the way, in that verse about how he could be content in much or in little. He could be content with anything. God has given them that ability. But, you know, I mean, God did make the sun stand still and, and take a day and stretch it out so that Joshua could win a battle. But he only did that one time. He's not going to do that for you. You can fit so much in your life. And if you don't put Christ's devotion, worship, 
study, meditation, prayer in near the beginning, you will find that it's not there. There's not time. There's not enough hours a day in the leftovers. Colossians 4, Paul tells us, conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. And then he gives us a reason in Ephesians 5, 16, make the best use of the time because the days are evil. King James says, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Redeeming the time for the glory of God. Verse 11 After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And his disciples said, (laughs) If he sleeps, he does well. John often will showcase when people hear the spiritual and turn it back in a very worldly and and, uh, ontological, physical way. And this is another example of it. So Jesus has to flat out say, I'm saying he's dead. Now, the reason he would say he's fallen asleep, similar to how he said that that Jairus' daughter was not dead but sleeping, is because he's about to go wake him up. And, And, you know, you'd expect these guys to understand that, having already seen Jesus do this once. But because of their their failure to see these things from Jesus' point of view, they miss this very simple, and this isn't a new figure of speech Jesus just invented. In the scriptures, going way, way, way back, we have so-and-so died and slept with his fathers, rested with his fathers. This is a normal way of speaking. We Christians embrace it because it reminds us of the hope that we have of a resurrection. And Jesus responds, I'm glad for your sake that I wasn't there when he died. I'm glad for your sake. Because who dies in Jesus' presence in the Gospels? Far as I can tell and remember, no one. No one, we're told, dies in the presence of Christ because Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus is the great physician. And so he's not with him. And he says, I'm glad for your sake that I wasn't, that he did die. Now Jesus, with a word from where he sat, could have healed Lazarus could have saved his disciples all this heartache, including Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus. But clearly, he's preparing them for his own death. They'll say he's been dead four days, and Jesus says, just open it anyway. And then after Christ dies, had they been remembering and thinking and trusting, they could have said, well, Lazarus was dead four days. Let's not start to worry until the fifth day. And they never would have had to worry. He was preparing them. Not the way they wanted, not the way they would have chosen to have their prayer answered, but preparing them and answering the prayer all the same. He gets a mild rebuke from Martha, who comes out and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But he reminds her that he is the resurrection and the life. You know, when you talk to a little child who has to get a shot, whether it's a flu shot or something that you know, works like a measles vaccine. They don't want to be sick. You explain to them what measles is like and how dangerous it is. Let's say, I don't want that. But even more than that, they don't want that shot. They, they will cry before they even... And, and you know, my son, he's got a lot of me in him, which is cause for concern. And when he sees that needle, he tenses all up, which makes it hurt all the more when they put it in. He can, He would have... He'd wait. He'd wait and deal with the measles. Why? Because he doesn't want to feel that pain. And am I comparing 
the death of a family member to a child getting a shot. Not really, but in a sense, Paul sort of does that when he says our light and momentary struggles are not worthy of even being compared to the glory that awaits us. That when we can look at it, not even fourth dimensionally, but zooming out to say, God, you're in control, you're outside of time, we'll recognize that he's at work and using these trials to refine us. This is very easy for someone like me who hasn't dealt with a ton of loss and struggle in my life, who's never lost a child, who's never been homeless, to preach. But I promise you that if you hold to these truths and and bind yourself to God's word, that when you are experiencing such struggles, you'll find comfort. You see, it takes a lot of moxie to say, I want this and let me tell you how. There was not, not long ago, maybe six months ago, I was on my way rushing from one place to another and I needed to eat. So I, I made the classic blunder and started going through the Wendy's drive-thru. And uh, as I'm in the drive-thru, the eternal line of the drive-thru, someone comes up to my car and says, excuse me, I'm hungry. Can you get me something to eat? I said, oh, okay, sure. What would you like? I said, I want a cheeseburger and blah, 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 blah. I don't know. They've spat it out. I said, okay, I'll get you a cheeseburger. So I get him a cheeseburger Admittedly, I'm feeling kind of good about myself. I'm a good guy. Look at that. The pastor practicing what he preaches. Blah, blah, blah. So I pull up, and he's eating fries, by the way, when I get done. He's already eating fries. Oh, somebody got me some fries. Okay, that's fine. I give him the thing. He immediately opens it, takes the bun off, and says, I wanted bacon. This is when I stopped actually being righteous. And I said, well, that's what you get. Take it or throw it away. And then I drove off. It takes an awful lot of nerve to say, I want this, I need this, I'm desperate, but this is precisely how you need to approach it. This is is how I want you to answer my request. So Jesus then puts all this stuff to the test because he tells them, Lazarus has died, let us go to Judea. And this brings us back to the background. Why are they where they are? In the previous chapter... Jesus has been in Jerusalem, and remember his opponents have been trying to trap him and trick him. There was the woman caught in adultery. There's all these attempts to to kill him, essentially. And it got to the point, after he healed that blind man, where they actually picked up stones and were about to stone him. It's the second time in the book of John. And Jesus says, which of my miracles do you stone me for? They say, not for any of your miracles, but because of your blasphemy. And we're told that he evaded them. He slipped away. Why has our head not yet come? He slipped away, and he and his disciples left Jerusalem, crossed the river Jordan, and they were hanging out near Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where we had seen John the Baptist had been baptizing people. So now he says, let's go back to Judea. Let's go to the other Bethany, the one that's so close to Jerusalem that during Holy Week, Every night, Jesus will leave the temple complex, travel to Bethany, and crash there. Let's go back into the the dragon's lair and tempt... I, I just narrowly avoided being stoned to death there, but let's go back. And his disciples all kind of say, why is that smart? There, there's a river between us. They're in Perea, not Peoria, Perea. And they're in Perea, they're safe for the moment. They're they're safe, but Jesus says, we're going back. Why go back? Lazarus is already dead. We're going back. Jesus knew what we know, 
but it's, we, we so hard, have such a hard time embracing and living out. Jesus knew what Henry Martin, that great missionary, knew when he wrote, I am immortal until God's work for me to do is done. Until my hour has come, what can man do to me? If God is for me, who can be against me? I think we see some of this in Jesus and also a great attitude. When some Pharisees came to him in Luke 13 and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my course. I will not be put to death early. No one will take my life from me. I lay it down. And he shows that he knows God is in control over everything. This Mary, by the way, there's a little, a little parenthetical. It was this Mary who had anointed his feet and dried his feet with her hair. It hadn't yet happened. It happens in chapter 12. But she's famous for that. He says, that's the Mary. There's a lot of Marys I know, so I'll tell you which Mary you're dealing with. And when, and when that happened, you remember there, there's several different stories involving the, the anointing of feet. And, and in the one where the woman comes in and breaks the, uh, the alabaster container and pours nard on his feet, we remember Judas looked at that and said, why this waste? What a waste. Why this waste? You're, you could have sold all that and given it to the poor, meaning you could have sold all that and put it in our kitty and I would have pilfered some of it because he was a thief. Why this waste? Well, we think about Jim Elliott, another great missionary who was killed in his prime with a, a wife and a young child to care for and he died bringing the gospel to the Wadoni Indians in South America. They, they were in the middle of killing each other. They would kill each other almost every week, and, and, and these two warring factions were slowly dropping in number, and it looked like they might just completely kill each other off. And so he said, I can't wait. i got to go in. i got to bring them the gospel. And one day he was there trying to make a connection with them, and they speared him and his companions to death. And the next day, in one of the major newspapers... In the area, it said, four missionaries dead. Why this waste? Same question Judas asked. From our point of view, fixed in time where we are, it looks like an utter waste. It looks like a failure. But from a God's point of view, He is at work. He is glorifying God. And He is glorifying the Son of God. And out of that death came the conversion of both of those groups. And now today, they're Christians. In fact, they, they had said they didn't want there to be a big deal made out of them, a big story told of them, and they heard there was going to be a film, and they said, we don't want the film. And then they heard about Columbine High School. And they heard about how we were, just, we were killing each other like they'd been killing each other. And they said, you have our blessing. We'll help any way we can. Make the film. Show people there's another way. Show people that, that Jesus changes hearts. They were looking at things from the perspective of eternity. And then finally in verse 16, Thomas speaks for all of them. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's also go, that we may die with him. Thomas is remembered for this. And so anytime anyone mentions Thomas, they call him Faithful Thomas. Good, I'm kidding. No, he's remembered for something else. We'll look at that on Easter morning. But, but that's not fair. He, he's the one, he's a little morbid, maybe a little negative, but he understands how this is going to end, and he's willing to go. And they all go. They go with him. They recognize we might die, but God is with us. 
We're with Christ, and that's what matters. Jesus had taught in Matthew 10, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. This past week I was with my uh, peer group, uh, my pastoral peer group, and and the topic came up of uh, school shootings, which led us to talking about church shootings, um, and and, uh, the big debate between people about guns and having armed guards in churches and all these things. And, and we were talking more and more kind of extreme about things that churches could do. And then I don't remember who someone brought up, but you know, when you follow Jesus, part of that deal is you might die for your faith. Being willing to take up the cross. There are people who every time they gather together, they do it in secret because there's a good chance they'll be dragged off. They'll be tortured. They'll be killed. The house churches in China, for example. And here we say, well, it is unthinkable that there's a 1 in 300,000 chance that someone might come in and kill someone. It's not unthinkable. When we follow Him, we take up our cross, and on a cross you die. On a cross you lay down your life. And all but one, all but John, all but one of the disciples did just that. They were killed violently, often cruelly, and it was a testimony to Jesus Christ. It seems to me that many are, are looking at the, the danger as it is and saying, well, maybe if we tone down our message and don't offend anyone, no one would want to hurt us. And we can become this sort of benign presence that's barely noticed. And we, and we skate along under the radar. Look, we can stay away from Jerusalem. Why go back? There's danger there. But Jesus said, follow me. Take up your cross. Deny yourself daily and follow me. When we follow Jesus, we die. We die to our own efforts, our own righteousness, our own holiness, and we receive the benefits of his death and resurrection. We receive his perfect righteousness. But Christ calls us not to just do that once, come up and say a prayer and bingo, bango, that's it. No, we're called every day, daily, to deny ourselves and follow him. To take up your cross. And you know, I think it's easier to say, if I had to, I'd die for my faith, than it is day by day to prioritize and redeem the time and in little ways show that that's true. To, to take up my cross, okay, but to put down my phone, oh, I don't know. What if there's something funny I miss? Or to, to take up my cross, okay, but to turn off the television and spend time in prayer, maybe tomorrow. I don't know, maybe next year. I got a resolution for that one. I haven't, I haven't filled that in yet. There's the, big, there's the big gestures that we give. Oh, Lord, I would lay down my life. Who said that? Uh, Peter, right before he ran away. Right? I'll go with you even if it's to death. But if we're not willing in the little ways to prioritize our faith, we're fooling ourselves. What is it that causes the cross to be a stumbling block? To those who are outside of Christ, it's bad lighting, lack of lighting. They're in the dark, and they don't, they don't, have, they don't have the view. They, don't have the, they just see where they are in the moment. The Holy Spirit provides the light, shines the light. One of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is illuminating. And, and when we see that cross, we either have to die on it, or we have to turn and walk away from it. A Christianity that promises us all the right to affirm ourselves and even rides under the banner of affirming, is no Christianity at all. 
Christianity calls us to deny ourselves. Thomas grasped this. He's going to struggle with the resurrection because he hasn't seen it with his eyes, as I think we all would, but he grasps this in this moment. There's a cost. There's a cost. This this is heavy. This is a downer. Here's the thing. It's Lent, but you know that Sundays don't count toward Lent. Those 40 days, Sundays are all feast days. They're not fast days. Sundays are all little Easter's. All year round. And we have to remember the resurrection as well because this is going to be Jesus' next great statement. He's going to say, I am the resurrection and the life and bring Lazarus out of the tomb. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live. That's a bit of a downer. No, it's not. But Christ lives in me. Death and resurrection. I lay down my life and Christ takes it up. For me. And if God is at work amongst us, and if the Holy Spirit is indwelling each of us, we then shine the light. He shines the light through us to illuminate that cross. That it won't be a stumbling block, but rather that it will be that ark of salvation. If I can leave you with two truths, it would be these. One, the days are evil, so redeem the time. Don't float along. Don't think you'll give God what's left over at the end of the day, the end of the week. It won't be there. It will disappear. The days are evil, so redeem the time. And two, God has every hour in His hands. You are immortal until you have fulfilled His purpose for you. God is in control every hour. He loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, and so He stayed where He was for two days so that he could bring glory to himself and he could build the faith of all who saw. Let's go to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story that reminds us that we can bring our prayers to you and you hear them, but you will answer them in according with your own divine counsel and your own timing. And that, Lord, we are not any one of us in a position to critique your timing or your will. Lord, help us to have hearts that submit, like Thomas did, to your will. When we don't understand it, to say we will go, even if we go and die, we will go. We will follow. We won't try to lead you. We will follow you. Lord, let us be, let us be mindful of the fact that the days are evil and time is short and that we are even now in the 11th hour. But Lord, let us not give up. Let us not check out early, but rather let us redeem the time. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.